following talk is from St. Michael's Fowell, a gospel-centered community for Fowell, Teddington, and beyond. Our passion is to see every life following Jesus. For more information, visit our website, stmichaelsfowell.co.uk. Welcome to the Discipleship School. Um, everything we need is on this handout, which is great. And uh, if the font is small and we'd rather take away a larger one, just come and chat to me afterwards and I'll get one printed off. Because the font is a touch small. But I wanted to fit everything into four pages, so it's just one sheet of A4. That was my dream. And there's a lot there. Um, and it's helpful to follow along, but don't worry too much. Uh, if you kind of get lost and you just need to listen to me. Um, Luther probably has a claim for being the most influential person in the last, what, 500 years? He just, so many of us are Lutheran without even realising it. And that's true of people who are not even Christians. And uh, I'll kind of defend that claim a little bit later on. Um, the, the idea of today really is to give you a bit of a taster, an introduction to the man and his life, but also to his thinking, his thoughts, partly so that you go away thinking, oh, I'd love to read some Luther, and then you've got the opportunity to, and I can show you where to go get bits and where to start, uh, because he is, he is very accessible. That's one of the best things about Luther, is normal people like us can actually read him, as opposed to some of the other big thinkers uh, out there. And it's worth saying, I'm going to do a little bit of his biography, his life, partly because it's so entertaining, the things that happen to him are crazy, but partly because his, I think his thought and his thinking, the emphasis of the things he says, make a lot more sense when you get his life. There's a sense in which, I mean, that's true of all of us, actually. We all think that we're kind of completely neutral, empty vessels, just waiting for truth to be poured in, and then whatever we say is unfiltered kind of truth, and it's absolutely right. But actually, we're human beings, and what that means is we are influenced by our experiences, by our kind of our, our, the life events that have happened to us, our prejudices, all those kinds of things, and it does filter our theology. And I think it filters our thinking more than we'd like to admit. <laughs> Some of us believe certain theologies just because of the way that we are, as well as because of what's in the Bible. That's not to say that God's word is, I guess... Uh, there's thousands, of, you know, that there's hundreds of legitimate interpretations of God's word. Nor is it to say, I think that, um, yeah, that the mistakes aren't kind of our problem, if you like. But it is to say that although God's word is absolutely pure, our our receipt of it isn't always absolutely pure. Brilliant. Why doesn't someone? Does someone want to pray before we begin? Anyone want to volunteer for that? Brilliant, Margaret. That'd be great. Thank you. Fantastic. Five sections I'd love to do uh, in the next hour, and there is time for discussion, and we'll, we'll have time for questions. And there, at the top right, so before Luther's thought, what life was like before. The events that shaped Luther's thought, the people who shaped Luther's thought, the themes of Luther's thought, and the strengths and weaknesses of Luther's thought. Um, those are, that's kind of where we're going. It's, it's worth doing this partly because I think there is a lot of, especially amongst Protestant churches, just a lot of legend 
surrounding Luther. So the idea being that, you know, you had some great Christian thinkers right at the early church. That was pure. That You had people like Augustine, maybe even Gregory the Great in the 7th century. And then basically you have nothing but kind of rank paganism and terrible things. And the Catholic Church was dreadful in every single way for about 800 years. And then you get Luther and everything was darkness before Luther went striding up to uh, Wittenberg Castle Chapel door and posted on it his 95 theses, therefore declaring that the Reformation was on and that evangelicalism was born and everything since then has been kind of absolutely fantastic in every way. It's just a bit more complicated than that. Uh, and uh, that's not to say that there's not truth in that, but, but it is a bit more complicated than that. So let's, let's talk a little bit about what life was like before Luther. And I'm going to do a lot of generalisation. As soon as you say something that's generally true, there will be exceptions to that. There will be places where that's not quite true. But here are some things that are generally true about medieval Catholicism. And I guess that was based in the church in Rome. Uh, but we're talking about all of Western Europe, really, wherever uh, Catholics were. They looked to Rome as the head of their church. And there were some things that Roman Catholicism got right and got right in a big way, actually. I think in a way that possibly we get wrong. But as we'll see... There's this system of thought that kind of evolves and develops, starting off with some good assumptions and goes down some wrong alleyways, basically. And you can see where the wrong turns are. We've got that list of words there, all with an exclamation mark afterwards. I think you want to draw an arrow from the top to the bottom, because actually they follow a logical thought. So what did the, the medieval Catholic Church believe about the world? Well, first of all, that there is real judgment coming. The medieval world was a much more brutal world with warfare, disease, infant mortality and a lot of injustice. And there was a much greater appreciation that things can't be sorted out until the day that Jesus comes back and the day that God sorts everything out. If you went now to Salisbury, which would be an excellent decision because it's the best place in the UK, and to the train down there and you went into the centre, the cathedral took... I think something like 50 years to build. I need to check that. And so because it took such a long time to build, they built a church in the centre as a place where those building the cathedral could go to church while they were building the cathedral. So there's an enormous church called St Thomas Salisbury right in the centre next to Cafe Nero. And as you walk in, they've just rediscovered a piece of art that was covered over during the English Reformation, whitewashed. They've uncovered it and it's a huge fresco basically over the front of the church of the last judgment and you've got Jesus sat in the middle judging everyone and on his left people are going to damnation so they're being people are being thrown people have done evil things being thrown into fire there's kind of fishes eating people there's demons poking people with tridents and on the other side you've got people who are going to eternal glory and everything looks happy and rosy and there's angels singing and it, partly through visuals like that and People knew that good people go to heaven and bad people go to judgment. If you do wrong things, there. And the fear of that really fell upon people. That was, that was a driving motivation for many people's thinking. I must be on the right side of this when Jesus comes back. And seated at the top of it all is King Jesus, who does not look like gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He is the Lord of everything. He's much larger than all the other characters. He sat on his throne and he is judging the world. Sat in the centre of the clouds and in the rainbows. That was, everyone knew that was where history was going. That was stamped upon people's minds. 
You, you might go into church, and because everything that happens in church is in Latin, and you're an English peasant, you might not understand anything that's happening. But you can look up and think, well, I know judgment's coming. That's kind of the one thing you do know. So then you think about sin, and you think about, well, well what is sin? Well, judgment is so terrible, and you're so desperate to avoid judgment, that you need to know what sin is so that you can avoid it. And therefore, you think, well, sin is, you know, doing bad things. Sin is kind of doing wrong. And I guess there must be different categories of sin. There must be really, really bad sins that if you do that, you definitely are on that side. And there's other things that are little sins. And I guess if there's two destinations, there's a way of deciding that you can go to one end and not the other. So if you do good things, you go that way. And if you do bad things, you go that way. Now, it's not to say that was in every way the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. But in one sense, that doesn't matter. Because actually, what people believed in the pew was more important in that sense. Uh, Popular religion is kind of where the rubber hits the road. Outside of the church, thirdly, there is no salvation. So the, the, the way of being on one side, or another way of saying you're on the good side, is that you belong to the mother church. You are in the Catholic Church. And if you get cast out of the Catholic Church, if the priest decides not to let you have communion anymore because you've done something really bad, that is a terrible thing. You're outside of God's goodness. You're being judged. That is terrible. And so at the head of the church is the Pope. The Pope. So when Jesus said, you are Peter to the Apostle Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, it was understood that, well, Peter went to Rome and was the first bishop of Rome, and that every bishop of Rome from that point inherited that mantle. So they, the, the Pope was the most important person uh, in Roman Catholicism. That actually he was like Christ's vicar on church. Jesus' authority has been delegated to the Bishop of Rome, who can then direct things. And that evolved over the centuries. And in medieval Catholicism, the Pope was supreme, both as a kind of earthly king, earthly prince, but also as a spiritual authority. We're capable of doing good deeds, we must be, so that we can get to, from one side to the other, uh, so that we can uh, do good within ourselves. It's difficult, and medieval Catholicism did teach about God's grace. But God's grace and his goodness to us as human beings was like a kind of battery that gets infused within us and gives us the kind of spiritual energy to do good things. So in other words, you are capable of good, but you need God's grace to help you get there and soup you up like a battery or like petrol. The people who are really, really good were called saints. And saints were, not everyone was a saint, but those who were saints were were particularly brilliant Christians who'd done lots of really good things. And uh, the good thing about saints for normal people like you and I is that they were so good, they still have a bit of power on earth. So they did so many good deeds and ended up going straight to heaven that actually... uh, there's a bit of a treasury of good deeds in heaven that the church has access to and can bestow upon people. So if you're, you haven't got enough good deeds, you can kind of benefit from the holiness and good deeds of some of the saints. There's one saint in particular, this is as an example, a lady called Saint Anne. So Jesus was obviously very scary. So you don't really want to go directly to Jesus in your prayer. You don't want to go directly to Jesus with your life. So people began to think, well, if I, if I don't want to go straight to Jesus... A better thing might be to go to Jesus' mother, Mary. So Mary becomes someone who we reverence, who we venerate. uh, And that was the official Catholic teaching, that we venerate her as the mother of God. We would esteem her. 
And we don't necessarily pray to her. She's not God, but we kind of pray kind of with her. We pray near her with a statue and we kind of use her. Now, that distinction was obviously lost on many peasants in uh, the Roman Catholic Church who just kind of looks like we're bound down to a statue of Mary and that's what we'll do. But over time, the same thing happened to Mary as happened to Jesus. So she becomes the queen of heaven who's able of deciding whether you go to heaven or hell. So she becomes quite scary. So then you have to go to someone who's above her. So the mother of Mary, supposedly, in medieval Catholicism, was someone called Saint Anne. So a very lively cult of Saint Anne developed. So you get to Jesus by going through his mother, and you get to the mother by going through the mother, Saint Anne. That will be important later on, but that gives you an example of how saints kind of work. You can kind of use them. These indulgences are the kind of good deeds, the kind of holiness, if you like, the sanctification stored up in heaven for people like you and I to access. And because the church has control over it, the officers of the church have a special control over it. So the bishops, the cardinals, the priests, and they can declare when you've got some of that merit for yourself. Uh, Over time... It came to be, so to begin with, for instance, one of the most holy things you can do to access merit would be to go on a crusade. So to go over to the Holy Land and defend Christian people and defend the lands there. And, well, in practice, do an awful lot of violence, but somebody somewhere else, that doesn't matter. Um, but if you didn't want to go on crusade over, over the decades, you would pay some money towards the crusading effort instead. And then it didn't take long before, essentially you could just pay money to the church and receive back indulgence and godliness. And you can see how none of this was fully intended by a Roman Catholic church, but how on a popular level this just happens. And lastly, you might have relics. So though medieval Roman Catholicism was not pagan at all, you get this situation where the things associated with saints became holy and merit of themselves. And if you visit a relic, something that uh, had been kind of touched by a saint or used by a saint, you might get some of that merit yourself. Quite famously, I mean, there was a huge trade in relics all around Europe. I think in France during the Middle Ages, there were two different heads of John the Baptist, uh, one in the north of the country and one in the south, which is quite useful for journey times, I guess, if you're closer to one rather than the other. Um, but to visit a as a relic is a good thing. One thing I've not got on the sheet is the idea of purgatory. It's a bit stark, it's a bit binary to have heaven on one side, hell on the other, and you're definitely going to one or the other. So what's more useful? Because what if you're kind of sort of good, but you're not quite good enough to walk straight into heaven? That'd be very presumptuous, wouldn't it? And you're not bad enough to go to the eternal hellfire and damnation. So Roman Catholicism kind of came up with with a novel idea, which has got... uh, which can be kind of defended by one or two vague references in Scripture, but certainly isn't taught, I don't think, in Scripture, of the idea of purgatory, which is basically that good Christian people who should go to heaven but aren't good enough to go there yet, go to purgatory. And when you go to purgatory, there you are purged in quite unpleasant, but I guess beige ways. You kind of, you're slowly purged over time of your sin before you're ready to go into heaven. And the indulgences, the relics, the things like that, the cults of the saints, they would give you time off in purgatory. They would give you a little bit of merit so that you kind of 
you will uh, hopefully I'll only be there for a little bit. And then it didn't take long before, actually, you could try and secure through the things that you do and the money you give and the indulgences you give, you could try and secure time off for your relatives who've already died to go through purgatory and into heaven. Just before the Reformation, around 1517, uh, there was a guy called Johann Tetzel. He was uh, operated in Germany. And Rome itself, the city, had become pretty poor. A bit of that was a needed rebuilding. And that's an expensive thing. So indulgences, a few people thought, would be a great way of raising a load of capital. And this guy called Johann Tetzel travelled around Saxony, and especially the town where Martin Luther was from. And he was trying to encourage people, as many people as possible just to give as much money as you can and I'll be able to give you your merit and indulgence. And he was a bit of a travelling salesman, a bit of a hack. He was, I mean, he was a horrible bloke. He was not the best of medieval Roman Catholicism at all. He would have ditties that are quite clever. So take a penny, put it on the drum, and into heaven strolls mum. Like that would be one of the rhymes that he would do. Every time a penny in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. That was one of his little ditties that he'd kind of sing. He famously said that his indulgences were so good that even if you'd raped Mary, the mother of God, he'd be able to get you off and get you into heaven. That was kind of one of the things that he said. And obviously, people were scandalised by this. I mean, not necessarily those back in Rome who might not have known exactly how this money was got, but they just basically received enough money from the kind of German peasants and people that they were able to build the Sistine Chapel. If you, know, if you ever visited the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican, that's how this was funded, basically. Um, but people in Germany were scandalised that their money was being taken in this way. And it, just over time, by the time we get to the kind of 1500s, people are seeing that there's loads and loads of problems with the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, looking down your handout, you'll see two things about the Pope, for instance. So in the 14th century, from 1309 to 1376, there was a situation called the Avignon Papacy, where someone was elected Pope, the kind of father of the church, the Bishop of Rome, and basically enjoyed the south of France and was French and decided to live in the south of France instead. Unfortunately, they also weren't the model Pope. The Avignon Papacy was quite famed for being super wealthy and pretty decadent. And so the Roman Catholic Church said, look, that's not going to work. So they deposed that pope and elected a different one in Italy. The problem is the first one decided not to go. So now you've got two fathers of the church and it's quite tricky to know what to do. So there was a moment where they said, well, what we'll do is we'll depose both of them and elect a third. But obviously, neither of those two went. So then you had three popes. Like it, it all got a little bit farcical, which if this is your authority of the church, just doesn't look good at all. It's worth pulling out these two as these three as well. These are popes who are back in Rome in the 15th century. Pope Alexander VI, Julius II, Leo X, three popes in succession. Well, Pope Alexander VI uh, had many, many mistresses, just loads of mistresses and loads of illegitimate children, which for someone who's leading the celibate priesthood, is not a great look. Julius II wasn't as bad, but let's just say it wasn't great. Also had lots and lots of children. And Leo X uh, was famously ag- an agnostic. He didn't really know if God existed or not. Which again, is not absolutely ideal. Now, the big question if you're medieval Christian looking at all this is you go, well, what do we do about this? Do we 
get rid of all of this and start again. Well, actually, to us, no one was thinking that, except for one person we're about to look at. Or do we just reform this a bit? Have we just got a few bad apples, or is there something wrong with the system? And actually, as you can see on the right, there were a few, there were plenty of people who disagreed with a lot of the way that this doctrine had evolved over time. So interestingly, uh, three of those names on the right are English, Robert Grossetest. I don't actually know how you say his name, Grossetesti. Uh, John Wycliffe, Jan Hus and William Tyndale. I'm sure you've heard of some of those. John Wycliffe translated the Bible into English, into the common tongue. He realised that, look, it's not about what the, the priests tell you. It's not about uh, having a mass in Latin at the front of a church. Uh, but actually, the most important thing is that the people hear about Jesus in their own language. So the main role of the vicar in medieval Catholicism would be to do the mass in the traditional language of the church, which was Latin, would stand at the front of church. It would all look very fantastic and grand. They'd be wearing the robes. You'd have every understanding that they, something special is happening at the front, that you are little and this church is enormous. And at the front, they would kind of raise Jesus, uh, the bread and the wine in communion, the body and the blood, to heaven. Um, and it didn't take long before, basically, people would, people would argue that actually it's not just a, a signifier of Jesus' body and blood, but actually this... It literally becomes again Jesus' body and blood. And one of the ways that we, we go from the bad side to the right side, if you like, is by regularly taking on Jesus' body and blood and almost sacrificing him again every Sunday for all of your sins, kind of washing you clean again, just getting you a little bit closer every time. But obviously the body and the blood are so important that you can't just share them with everybody. So the priest would take it on behalf of the people. So you would kind of be excluded from Communion. The common people were allowed to take the bread, but weren't allowed the wine, because it'd be terrible if the common peasants spilt a bit of the blood of Christ. So you'd walk in, you'd hear a load of stuff in Latin, you'd see a load of stuff happening at the front of church, and then you'd walk out again. And so no wonder you believe some slightly odd things about what's happening, because you haven't got a clue what's going on. The emphasis is not on teaching in your own language. And John Wycliffe said, no, 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 we need to start teaching people about Jesus again from the Bible. Translate it into English. One of the people who was really influenced by John Wycliffe uh, was a guy called Jan Hus, and he was in Prague in the Czech Republic, and he started teaching some of the uh, things that he found in the Bible, things that he'd heard from Wycliffe, not least that the most important place where you find God's truth is in God's word, not in what the Pope says. That was his, his kind of big thing. And as a result, he was burned at the stake by the church authorities uh, for being such a heretic. Um, because in medieval Catholicism, you think, look, the Pope might not be, each human Pope might not be all that. But we must be unified. There's one church where you can find salvation. And we must be all together. We have to be. And so if you undermine the authority of the Pope, then all kinds of people will get all kinds of crazy ideas and we'll just run off in all kinds of directions. And we can't have that. So we've got to stay together with the Pope. And Jan Hus, as he was, uh, I think as he was being led to the stake or possibly the day before, he said something, uh, I think it's quite emotional. He said, so Hus in Czech means goose. His name literally means John Goose. And he says, you might cook this old goose, but a hundred years from now a swan will arise whose song you'll never be able to silence. 
Let's turn over the page. And a hundred years later, there was a man called Martin Luther. Should I pause there for questions? Because I've, I've talked for a long time there, but and I'd love to invite questions of clarification. I've gone quite big on that, but I think it's really helpful to see kind of Luther's thought world. Um, yeah. So was it like... Yeah, interesting. I, yeah, I'm not sure about that. I don't know. Certainly, they believe they were the, the church said the way that the common people receive God's goodness and grace is through what's called the sacraments. The sacraments are the ceremonies that the church have in its locker, and that's how you receive God's goodness. And there were seven of them. I can't quite remember all of them. Uh, there was uh, baptism, the Lord's Supper, confession with the priest, I think, ordination of, to the priesthood, marriage, doing penance, and one other. <laughs> I'll have to look it up later. Confirmation, brilliant, that was one of them. Yeah, fantastic. They did have that, but they would say that these are objective ways. They're like, Michael Reeves describes them as taps. These things are taps, and God's grace is like the water. And these sacraments are like taps that can be turned on. You stand under the tap and you receive some of God's grace. God's grace doesn't completely fix you, if you like, but it give, it's like a battery. It gives you the energy you need to be good, to do good things, and get there. If you think about that, it's quite similar to what we might hear at church today. Uh, it's not the same, and there's some seriously important differences, but it's, it's similar. But what this also does is makes the church unbelievably powerful, because they control the taps. And if I find Margaret doing something really, really naughty, and I declare, you're excommunicated, I'm just turning the taps off you, and then you've got no hope of going to this side. And every Sunday when you walk into church and you look at this fresco, you know exactly which side you're on. And so the stakes are pretty enormous. So they would have, they'd have baptism, definitely, and child baptism. Um, but it wouldn't be that or pay money. It's kind of both and. And as, as often as you can stand under the taps, the better. Because you definitely want to be on one side, not the other. Into this world in 1483, Martin Luther was born. He was a smart guy, so his dad signed him up for university and wanted him to train as a lawyer. But it all went wrong in 1505 one day when he was visiting home. And he was riding his horse in a storm and a lightning bolt hit the ground really close to him. And he was terrified. And he shouted. You know how some people, I don't know, just shout things they might not believe as they get scared or whatever. But he shouted, save me St. Anne. Do you remember St. Anne, the mother of Mary, the mother of God? Save me, St. Anne. She was the family patron saint. Save me, St. Anne, and I'll become a monk. Anyway, he didn't die. And <laughs> that year, he enrolled in a monastery, which really annoyed his dad, who'd paid for this quite expensive education. And he went to a kind of Catholic monastery. Well, in 1507, he had his first mass as a priest. So that thing I described... That, by the way, is why all our churches are so enormous. And you kind of have all the... Lots of Church of England churches, which used to be Catholic-style churches, are shaped in a certain way. 
because they're designed so that you feel quite small, there's the majesty of God, and at the front, there's a priest on your behalf who's doing the mass for you. And you don't, they're not designed to hear preaching because you don't need to hear preaching. You just need to see what's happening at the front of church. You need to see the grandeur of the mass. That's how it's kind of designed. Um, whereas if you go into kind of a Baptist chapel, they look completely different, don't they? And they're basically designed so you can just hear a speaker preaching because that's thoroughly reformed, if you like. Um, I mean, I, I do like our church, but that just, uh, just explains why things like cathedrals and stuff look a bit different. Um, well, Luther had his first mass. And basically, I mean, this is a fascinating insight into his psychology, but it got to the stage where he as the priest was supposed to approach the bread and the wine. And he was just terrified. He couldn't do it. And he was shaking. And his dad was in the room. And he basically had this overwhelming sense of how can I, a sinful human being, approach the goodness and godliness of God, the holiness there? I just, I can't do it. And he was absolutely terrified. Uh, That conviction, that's worth banking and thinking about it later. In 1508, uh, a university was established in Wittenberg and he was invited as someone who was really good with his Bible, as a monk, to go and be a professor there. I think a professor in New Testament. Um, in 1510, he got the chance as a monk to be a representative to go on pilgrimage to Rome. So he went to Rome and he got to, he was so excited because he's like, I can visit so many different relics at the same time. Uh, Mike Reeves has got a comment where he says, he just regretted that his parents were still alive because if they were in purgatory, probably one trip to Rome would be enough to get them straight up into heaven. Um, so he went, he buzzed around Rome, but there were seeds of doubt sown as he looked around Rome, which had kind of become the religious Las Vegas of his day. And he thought, is this what biblical religion really is? And the visiting of relics and, and, and fleecing us of money and all that kind of stuff. In 1517, he heard about that guy. Do you remember that guy, Johann Tetzel, when the coin in the coffers rings a soul from Purgatory Springs? And he was scandalised. So he wrote... The 95 theses in 1517, and on October the 31st, he went and posted them on the castle door. That was basically like the community notice board, and he was basically saying, the 95 theses, this is what I have a problem with, and this is what I want to discuss, and he slaps them on the notice board. And in kind of Protestant circles, we think of that as the start of the Reformation. That's known as Reformation Day. That's a really exciting moment. But actually, he wasn't yet fully fledged anti-medieval Roman Catholicism, Protestant in that sense. At that stage, he basically had a real problem with indulgences and how they were being handled, and a big problem with Johann Tetzel. But there were some things in his thought, definitely, that were being developed. A year later, so this did make him famous, and because he'd put his head above the parapet, people were getting quite cross at him. And so a brilliant Catholic scholar, a guy called Johann, no, John Eck, he's called John Eck, came to him uh, and they had a big debate publicly at Leipzig. And there's all kinds of things that went on. Now, Eck was brilliant. And Luther was still, was basically wrestling with how much of this stuff in Catholicism is right or not. And so Eck basically won the debate. But there's one significant moment in this, which is when Eck asked him, how do you know what's true? Do you believe the Pope like the rest of us? Or can the Pope get things wrong? Like, do you believe councils? Or do you believe the, the word of God? And Luther said, well, actually, I believe in what the word of God says. I believe what the Bible says. And Eck said, you sound like Jan Hus. Now, that's 
intellectually, you don't want to be painted as someone who's Jan Hus. No one knows the thoughts of Jan Hus that much, but you know that 100 years ago, there was a guy who was executed for being a heretic. So you're like, I'm not Jan Hus. He said, I'm not Hussite. I'm not Jan Hus. No way. And then he went home that evening and the debate, I mean, there were quite serious things, these debates. They carried on the next day. So he went home, went and read some Jan Hus and he came back in the morning and was like, do you know what? I am like Jan Hus. Yeah, I think Jan Hus is absolutely bang on. And... Uh, as a result, he was basically uh, kind of excommunicated. So those taps had been turned off on Luther. And there arrived in his town a messenger from the Pope who bought a letter called a bull of excommunication and it gave it to Luther. And this says, I'm officially saying you're outside of Mother Church and you're facing judgment. And Luther responded in a very balanced way by burning it publicly outside the town. And that really is the moment where he's kind of... There's warfare now between Luther on his own and the rest of uh, and the Roman Catholic Church. That's a really significant moment. And that's when the Reformation kind of really kicks into gear. You'll see on the timetable on page two on the right that in 1520, he actually published more than three works. But these are the three works that are really, really significant moments for the Protestant Reformation. Uh, the Babylonian Captivity of the Church which basically is about how the taps, the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church, they inappropriately control the church. They've captivated the church. That's wrong. And actually that phrase, Babylonian captivity of the church, refers to, that's what some people said about the Avignon papacy. So that's, well, that's a well-known phrase. That's a phrase like kind of Brexit. We all know what that means. Babylonian captivity. He used that as his title to say, look, the way they've captured the church with these sacraments is just wrong. Secondly, uh, an appeal to the German nobility. He wrote to German princes saying, you shouldn't be living under the authority of the Pope. You should help me reform the church and kind of uh, a church for, for kind of German people, a, free, a, free, a freer church. Um, we can reform this church. And thirdly, the freedom of the Christian man is basically his new understanding that people are justified. Uh, We'll come on to this a little bit later. Um, That actually the way someone gets right with God is not to sit in Mother Church and just receive the sacraments. That actually it's not about doing good deeds once you've had the spiritual battery. It's that God declares that you are righteous and good and then you cross over from death to life. And he unpacks both that doctrine and its understanding in the book, The Freedom of the Christian Man. Now, these three books, they're not long. In fact, this is uh, The Freedom of the Christian Man. I think it's about 40 pages. Let me look. It's quite big writing. 27 pages, less than, fewer than that. So you could describe them as tracts rather than books. They're kind of tracts. And importantly, they're written in German. And even more importantly, there had just been a brand new invention, which I should have put on the timetable. Thank you, Ruth. Yeah, the printing press. People have just invented the printing press. This is as massive as the internet. Instead of getting monks to copy by hand your work, all of a sudden now, I, don't, I, I have no idea how a printing press works. I don't know, you turn a handle and all, all these papers fly out the other side. You, you can just produce works at a great rate. Well, in 1520, I think there were three local presses in his town. And they couldn't keep up with the amount of stuff that he was producing (laughs) in terms of theological works. And just flying all around Germany. And this is what really kind of kicked off his stuff. In 1521, he's he's finally called before, not the Pope, but the Holy Roman Emperor. If you see on page one, I've got a map of Europe. 
And that purple splodge in the middle is the Holy Roman Empire in around the start of the 17th century, so just after Luther's time. And it's basically a German kingdom headed up by an emperor. It's quite ancient. And the idea originally was to resurrect the Roman Empire. But as you can see, it's, it's mainly Germany, kind of Switzerland, a bit of northern Italy. But the Holy Roman Empire emperor was a good Catholic. He wanted to be close to the Pope. He wanted to be a defender of the faith, that kind of thing. And so he called Luther to stand in front of him and said, I need you to recant. And you may have heard Luther's very famous speech. Uh, that he was stood in kind of an imperial court, the emperor in front of him, all the scholastics kind of around him, a huge crowd behind him. Uh, and he was asked, he, a table like this was placed in front of him and all of his works piled on that table. And he was asked, would you recant these works? And he actually prevaricated. He said, uh, can I have a night to think about it? And they all said, uh, okay. So he went away and he looked very nervous. I mean, you would be, wouldn't you? You're called in front of basically the most important and powerful people of the day. The next day, he comes in. Apparently, it was unbelievably hot in the room. Lots of torches lit. He was sweating and everyone thought he looks just as nervous as he did yesterday. But his voice basically rang out. I said, if you can show me that my novel ideas, which constitute about a third of the books you've got, can be disproved by the word of God, then surely I will immediately recant. But if you can't, then I won't. And my conscience is bound. Uh, I can do no other, so help me God. Amen. And the place just went into uproar, basically. Here's someone who stands in front of the most powerful man in, the, in Europe and says, I will do what the Bible says, not what the Pope says, not what Roman Catholicism says. The big, the kind of big phrase, which is very, very famous from this moment, is people say that he said... Uh, I can't remember exactly how it goes, but here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. But apparently he probably didn't really say that, which is a shame because it, I think that's a great line, isn't it? Here I stand, I can do no other. He then immediately, I mean, it's all very dramatic. He's, he's whisked away by some friends and he's travelling home in a wagon when his wagon is surrounded by armed men and he's kidnapped. And everyone laments oh no like that seems to be the end of luther we haven't quite got to grips with his ideas yet we need this guy to teach us the gospel actually he was kidnapped by a friend a powerful prince uh, who was elector frederick the wise and he was basically trying to safeguard him and whisk him away and took him to a castle where he could just write and work and produce things and be safe from the catholics uh, from the roman catholic church he hated being in the castle he hated being in disguise he, if you ever read Luther, there's a lot of stuff, there's a lot of toilet humour. He always talks about poo and farting. And he writes, he gets, I think he gets piles while he's in the, uh, in the castle and a bit of constipation. He's just thoroughly miserable when it's cold. But he does produce a lot of work. He is, he's a funny guy. I mean, there's a lot of humour with him. I remember a story, because he would, he would go around Wartburg Castle, he... He grew a beard and he decided to dress as a knight, so armour and swords and stuff. And there's a story that someone was looking for him. And Luther was in disguise, sat in the pub, drinking beer. And someone ran into the pub, they looked around and they looked at him. And they ran straight over and said, Martin. And he said, how do you know it was me? I'm in disguise. And the man paused and says, yes, but you're reading the Psalms in Hebrew. <laughs> like, there isn't a knight that does that. Um, so he's in hiding, and in that time he produced the, the German the New Testament. 
So a brand new invention had happened where basically because uh, people had been, lots of scholars had been looking at different classical sources, a guy called Erasmus in the Netherlands, Erasmus of Rotterdam, had produced the first ever Greek New Testament. So before, the Roman Catholic Church had a Latin Bible, so you could only read it if you read Latin or you knew someone who read Latin. And Erasmus took uh, a much closer kind of original source and produced a text of the Greek New Testament. And that was helpful because now if you learnt Greek, you could compare the official church translation with what the orig- something close to what the originals say. And that was important for all kinds of reasons. But one of the reasons is people began to notice that the official church version had actually changed some bits or got some bits wrong in a way that showed the whole Roman Catholic system to be right, basically. So, for instance, in Matthew 1, uh, where Jesus says, "Repent," uh, sorry, Mark chapter 1, um, the kingdom of heaven has come near, repent therefore and believe the good news. In the official church version, it was do penance therefore and believe the good news, which is just very different from one means change your mind and the other one means kind of pay money, do good deeds, those kinds of things. Now, Erasmus wasn't someone who wanted to reform the church necessarily, uh, but Luther took his New Testament and translated it in just seven weeks into German. In such brilliant German, it said that it shaped the, the German language, a bit like how the King James Version here in the UK has shaped the English language massively. The same is true of the German one. In 1522, his misery is at an end and he goes back to Wittenberg. Not least because there's a couple of people knocking about who are basically crazy reformers called the Zwickau prophets who believe that they don't need the Pope, they don't need the Bible either. They just, they just hear from the Holy Spirit directly and they can say whatever. Um, now, some people today, you know, Christians do believe that we hear what the Holy Spirit says, but we hear what the Holy Spirit says in line with what the Bible says. Whereas these guys were like, don't worry about the Bible. Just believe what I say to you because the Holy Spirit's speaking to me. And Luther thought that was seriously worrying. He's like, what's more important, a subjective feeling or something that you think God might be saying to you, or the objective reality of the written word, these historical documents that we know we've got from the first century? And that's a really important thought for Luther. It's not about us inside and what we think God might be saying, but I can look outside of me However I'm feeling, Romans 1 says the same thing. Like, however I'm feeling, this is unchanging. And that became massive in his thinking. In 1525, he got married. Because the Reformation was starting to gather pace and Roman Catholicism was losing ground, lots of monasteries and nunneries were starting to shut. And one nunnery wrote to Martin Luther, who was you know, one of the only leaders of the Reformation at that point, saying, I don't know what we're going to do. And if you're a nun, you've got no possessions. It's a brutal world. You might not have any kind of transferable skills. You're very vulnerable. So they all wrote to him and said, what can we do? And he said, yeah, you should definitely escape and come to Wittenberg and I'll, I'll help you out. And he said there was a wagon went to this nunnery. Uh, a, a herring salesman went and they stuffed seven nuns in seven barrels of herrings. Uh, which you must really want to escape if you're wanting to do that. And they kind of, they took these barrels across to Wittenberg. And when they turned up, Luther just basically took six of the nuns and married them off to his friends and said, right, well, you marry this person. Because it's just the simplest way of 
game, these guys looked after him. Just go get married. So they married them to friends. And there was one left who was 15 years younger than him called Catherine de Bora. And she said, Catherine von Bora, sorry. She said, either you find me a husband, you marry me yourself. And he was like, I don't, I don't want it. But after two years, he gave up and just married her. And it turns out they had a really wonderful marriage. They had a really nice marriage. They were really, really good friends. And all their letters, I've not read their letters apparently, but just full of affectionate jokes and little nicknames. Uh, all kinds of details. I mean, the, the Luther home sounded hilarious because his monastery had also shut. So the local prince had given it to him as his house. So he said, oh, just have it if you like. And he was like, great, I've got all this space. So he, he put a bowling alley in at the back. Uh, and she, when she turned up, she decided... Basically, they were always flat broke as a couple because he, he wasn't getting a lot of money for his books. He was just churning them out and getting them out there. He had a bit of a salary, uh, but he had a lot of expenses, I guess, travelling bits and bobs. So she had to make ends meet. So she basically ran a mini farm out of the back and a brewery. She basically brewed her own beer and sold it and kept trying to keep things afloat. But because people were, this is a very tumultuous time, people kept turning up on their door who needed a home. And he'd say, yeah, 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 whatever, just live with us, that's fine, we've got loads of room. And she'd be pulling her hair out saying, we haven't got any money or food, you need to stop doing this. We'd be like, oh, it's my fine, my wife will sort it out. And I, I imagine he'd be a really <laughs> tricky person to live with. Because he had no financial head about him at all. Um, he just wants to kind of write and preach and things like that. Um, and again, with the toilet humour, he... He, 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 in one letter, he kind of really praises one particular beer that she produced because he says, this one's amazing. It makes me poo about three times a day. Uh, that's just him all over, unfortunately. But they really grew very close. He said marriage is the same as not being married, except when you wake up, there are pigtails on your pillow and um, things like that. He, she once said, we're not spending enough time together. So if you go to their, their kind of monastery now, you can see there's, they've got a... There's a doorway, and as a birthday present to him, she kind of cut out of this doorway a seat on either side of this archway so that once a day they could just sit together in the doorway and just talk because they weren't spending enough time together. And that's, yeah, it's a, it's a lovely marriage that they have. He then wrote, 1525, The Bondage of the Will, and this was probably Luther's most important work. He, uh, it's... Disclaimer, I haven't read it. I've read about it, and I'm looking forward to reading it very much. But this guy, Erasmus, from the Netherlands, basically wrote a book in response to the freedom of the Christian and said, you're getting it all wrong. You don't have to rip up the whole kind of Roman Catholic thought system. And he called it, what did he call it? He called it the freedom of the will. He said, the reality is we are free to do good things, and we are free to choose the good things. And Luther realised at this moment, this is an opportunity, because... Here's a guy who gets what this whole thing is about. This is the centre of the argument. This isn't the periphery. So he wrote The Bondage of the Will in 1525, where he said, look, even if we... It's not about whether we choose what we want to do. We, we do choose what we want to do. But sin is so big. Sin curves us, uh, us in ourselves so that we just look at ourselves and we love ourselves. And what that means is we do choose the things we want to do, but we never want God and we never want goodness, and we never want godliness. The reason we're condemned is because God gives us what we want, and what we want is kind of misery, ruin, and selflessness. Selfishness, sorry. That's his, uh, the book, The Bondage of the Will, and it's very, very important. Brilliant. Coming towards the end now, 
couple of things to mention. While this is happening, just south in, in Zurich, there's a guy called Zwingli, who similarly has discovered the Bible and is preaching, and is preaching kind of Jesus and the gospel. And uh, people realise, look, it seems to be there's kind of reformations happening at the same time. Politically, we need to make sure this doesn't get snuffed out by Catholic armies and things like that. So let's unite the two. And someone brings together Zwingli from uh, Switzerland and Luther from Germany and bring them together and say, if you can unite and bring all your churches together, then a bit like how there's one massive monolithic Roman Catholic church, there will be one great monolithic Protestant church. And that would be amazing. Because the Catholics keep saying, look, you're letting anyone read the Bible. And what that means is people are going to have hundreds of different opinions. And people look at people like the Zwickau prophets, the guys who thought, I'm just listening to what God's spirit tells me within my heart, and I'm teaching that. And they're saying that is the inevitable consequence of turning away from Rome. It's fine not to like the Pope, but if you abandon the Roman Catholic Church, chaos ensues. The long and the short of it is that Luther and Zwingli basically couldn't agree. And it's really sad. They had 15 points that they've set out. They said these are the most important points of theology. They agreed on 14 of them. Of the 15th, they had five sub-points, and it was about the Lord's Supper and sacraments. They agreed on four of the sub-points, but on one sub-point of the 15th point, they disagreed. And the thing they disagreed about is what happens at the Lord's Supper. Luther rejected the idea that we are offering to God the crucified Jesus over and over again, his body and blood. He said, that's not true. But Jesus is present in the bread and the wine. And it's not our work to God. It is God's gift to us. Jesus is in it in a spiritual sense. And he would say he doesn't become the body and blood in a literal sense, but Jesus is kind of under the bread and wine. In other words, it's not just mere symbolism, but when you take, he would call it the mass actually, he wouldn't call it the Lord's Supper. So when you take the mass, it is literally building up your faith. And remember, it's not about what's in your heart, it's about what God objectively on the outside has done. So when we take the mass, God is objectively serving us and building us up. So you see, it's similar to Roman Catholicism, but the view is that God is giving it to us. So he would say, look, if you're struggling with doubt, take mass and remember your baptism. These are the objective signs that God has given you that his promises are true. Zwingli, on the other hand, and this is probably much closer to 21st century evangelicalism, so it might sound familiar, says there is nothing special about the bread and wine at all. Nothing special about it. All it is is a sign that helps you remember, oh yeah, Jesus died for me and rose again for me. It helps me remember the gospel. And when I remember the gospel, it serves my faith. So it's just a sign. Now to Luther, that was a problem. In fact, that was completely counter-gospel because he thinks what Zwingli has done is made the Mass something that we do, we remember God, not something that God does for us. He gives us Jesus. Does that make sense? So they look really similar, but it's the Godward direction that's different. Zwingli thinks we remember God Luther says, no, God is objectively serving us with Jesus. Gospel basis. Gospel basis, yeah, exactly. So for that reason, 
Luther says, I think Zwingli is of a different spirit, by which he meant, I don't, I'm not even sure he's a Christian. And he wrote in Latin, he got some beer, he poured it onto the table, and he took his finger, and in his beer, he wrote in Latin, uh, I think it's something like, Heo Horpus est mea corpus. In other words, Jesus, here is my body. And he took his finger and he underlined is, and then said, we have a different spirit. And the two churches never united. And as a result, there's like 26,000 Protestant denominations today. And do you know what I think is completely tragic about that? Is that Luther did the Latin version, Horpus est me corpus, and underlined est. But in Greek, which he should know, the original language in which the New Testament was written in, there's no words for is. Jesus just says, this, my body. So in other words, he kind of split the church on the basis of a word that didn't even exist in the Bible. Which is, a, I think, a real tragedy. And, yeah, we'll, we'll, I think we'll come to that a little bit in a second. Last thing, he, he, the last few things he did, for his Lutheran churches, the churches that began to follow him, he filled them with Protestant pastors, he spoke German, he taught the Bible... And he produced something called the Augsburg Confession, which is like a confession of faith. This is what Lutherans believe. And he, got his, uh, he helped write it uh, and sent it round. And then uh, he finished his whole German Bible. One thing that he, I mean, Mike Reeves says he wished he hadn't done before he died is his work on the Jews and their lies. He, at the start of his Reformation time, he was so confident that the more he preached, the more Reformation stuff he produced, people would just get saved and come in. He was like, there's no stopping this. And he boasted. He's, someone asked him, how does the Reformation work? And he says, honestly, do you know how I got the Reformation to work? I sat in the pub with my friends Philip and Amsdorf and I drank beer. And outside, the word of God did its work. In other words, if I just preach and write, everything will... I don't have to do any organisation, any campaigning, any politics. I just preach. And the Bible springs up. The problem with that is he said that in about in early on in the 1520s. By the 1530s, it's, the reality is leading a movement is just more complicated than that. You've got to campaign. You've got to organise. The, the Bible, if you like, suggests in the book of Acts and other places that actually loving people and serving people means organising and working hard and creating things and safeguarding things and just being shrewd. And it doesn't quite work like that. So some Protestants, you'll hear them say, oh yeah, like Luther, we just preach the word and we drink beer and God will do the rest. And you think, yeah, but he didn't actually sort of think that by the end. And one of the ways in which that cashed out is he expected the Jewish people in Germany to just turn en masse to his new gospel. And he thought they're one particular population who will just hear it and be saved. And actually, for whatever reason, Jewish populations weren't all becoming Protestant Christians. And he got very, very disillusioned. And he wrote this book on the Jews and their lies, which is basically just really, really horrible. I haven't read it. People don't recommend reading it, actually. And when Johnny was at Oak Hill doing church history, the lecturer said, I'm not even going to show you any quotes because they're that bad. At the Nuremberg rallies, the Nazis had a copy of On the Jews and Their Lies and they, they placed it on a pedestal in the midst of their rallies. In some ways, there's, there's no defending that. He wasn't a Nazi. What he was arguing for is for them to be excommunicated and their rights taken away in accordance with the kind of contemporary 
law of the land. But he was a creative guy and a good writer, and he used his gift for writing to lambast a religious minority and argue that they should be have rights taken away and killed and all those kinds of things. So Luther, uh, Mike Reeves, who has written a brilliant book on this, says, uh, I wish it died before I'd written that, really. And then in 14, 1546, he visited the town he was born in, a place called Eisleben, and uh, his wife said, please don't go, I don't think you're well enough. And he said, no, no, no it'll be fine. And he wrapped up warm against the cold and he rode his horse and he got there and he did a sermon and then he just felt his chest start to tighten and start to go. And everyone knew this was it. He'd been unwell for a long time and he gathered all of his friends around and he didn't have uh, last rites. He didn't have kind of the mass, anything like that because he was a Protestant. And so he just had the Bible read. And at the end he said... These are his last words. We are beggars. This is true. And then he died. And basically, if you look across to themes of Luther's thought on the right, here's here's my way of summarising not only Luther's thought, but Reformation theology in general. And you may have heard the phrase, big God theology. Have you heard that phrase? But the argument goes that, think about that fresco in St. Thomas Salisbury, up at the thing. There is something for humans to do. Being approached by God, that, that, the painting is trying to motivate you and think, get the sacraments, get within the church, get doing good things, get getting indulgences, get your time off purgatory, and then you can go to heaven instead of hell. But in Luther's thought, that sin is worse than that, and we are desperately ruined sinners who are not capable of doing good things. But salvation is all of God. He is so perfectly good. He has sent his son, who loves us so much, to be with us, to die on our behalf. He's done all the work of salvation and he bestows it upon us. And all we need to do is have faith on the, in the objective outside, external reality of Jesus' life, death and resurrection through the Bible. And we're saved. And however we're feeling, however we're performing... Knowing that, sealed in the word and in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, we believe the gospel and we're saved. That is what Luther thought. In other words, everything in Luther's theology made human beings small and God really, really big. There's loads of stuff there on page three that I'd love to have gone through, but uh, I think we haven't got time. Um, I think we're a touch ambitious about this. But why don't we finish with a quote from On the Freedom of the Christian, which summarises his stuff. And then I've got a couple of kind of coffee time questions. So unless you're, you're on serving, while we're waiting for the rest of the morning congregation to come for the 10.30 service, well, there's a couple of questions that we can kick around together. But why don't I read this? Um, Lo, my God, without merit on my part... Of his pure and free mercy has given to me an unworthy, condemned and contemptible creature all the riches of justification and salvation in Christ so that I no longer am in want of anything except of faith to believe that this is so. For such a father then, who has overwhelmed me with these inestimable riches of his, why should I not freely, cheerfully and with my whole heart 
and from voluntary zeal do all that I know will be pleasing to him and acceptable in his sight. I will therefore give myself as a sort of Christ to my neighbour, as Christ has given himself to me, and will do nothing in this life except what I see will be needful, advantageous and wholesome for my neighbour, since by faith I abound in all good things in Christ. Amen. Shall I open up the questions, uh, bits and bobs? I'm sorry, we've not managed to cover everything. Um, there's just a, there's a, there's a lot. Um, but I think through his biography, you can begin to see his thought kind of coming into shape. Yeah, any, any questions? Oh, good. So did he coin the term protest possibility? that back Yeah, it's a great question. I, I should look that up. I'll look up exactly when Protestant came into use. He would use the term Christian uh, and, and would say that we are the true Christians. And he also, I th- basically Mike Reeves consistently says that Martin Luther used the phrase evangelical. Yeah, which I thought was a much more modern term. But I mean, a, lot of, a lot of where it happens is people look back and say, this is what it means. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so did it kind of happen in, in Saxon Germany? Did, did those works then filter through you? Yes, they did. Yeah, great point. So, so he, he was kind of the the first big shining light. You've got Zwingli, but he didn't quite have the same focus on the gospel, justification by faith. How do you, how do you get saved, if you like? Um, but Luther was, was churning out all these works, and they were read in universities all around the world. Two, I've just been in Cambridge for the last couple of days. If you walk by Christ College, Cambridge, there's a plaque on the wall. There used to be a pub there where English theology students and professors used to gather to discuss the works of Luther. And that basically is how the Reformation started in England. Secondly, if you're at St. Andrew, if you've ever been to St. Andrew's University in Scotland, a student called Patrick Hamilton went across to Germany to hear Luther and brought back Protestant theology back to Scotland. He was preaching in St. He was just a student and the university authorities burned him at the stake because they said this stuff is too dangerous. And outside the chapel in St. Andrew's, there's the Hamilton Stone, which is the place where he was burned. And tradition says that students don't step on that stone because it's bad luck. And so if you watch a graduation at St Andrews, uh, basically the, the, if you step on that stone, you will fail your degree. That's the kind of thinking. So everyone avoids it. But what they do is at their graduation, you've already passed your degree. So they all stamp on the stone as they go into the chapel. And I just find that absolutely fascinating. You never did that? <laughs> okay. <Sorry>. Okay. Um, <laughs> But the third guy who read a lot of Luther was a guy called John Calvin, who was kind of a huge brain in the Reformation. Yeah, any other comments, thoughts? Bondage of the world, again, I need to, I need to get to reading it. There's a, there's a lot of this stuff I haven't read yet. But 
I think it's, it's basically having a big view of sin. The will is bound by sin. So what we want to do, we can't just choose to do good things. It's not as simple as that. Because our bond, we're so messed up by sin that we are selfish creatures and we're curved in on ourselves. And we just can't choose the things of God. But God, when he saves us, he changes our will so that we want him and love him as well as taking away our sin. And so it kind of has a, a bit like I've, I've got at the top of page three, small humanity, small view of humanity. We're not capable of doing that much stuff on, without him. But a huge view of God, he is able to do vast amounts. So I suppose slightly in relation to how it was received in the UK, like the same as Guy McBurk, for sort of bringing in and sort of talking about it. Yeah. Um, it was around that time that the church did break away from, from the Catholic Church. But this was kind of like King Henry Gates. He was already he was given a lot of authority by the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah. This one, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, without Luther, there would be no, none of these ideas. And although Henry VIII wasn't a Protestant, loads of his advisors were, and so they took the opportunity of him wanting a divorce to basically start pushing the Reformation in the UK, in England. Yeah. Yeah. And generally speaking, the South of Europe remained Catholic. Uh, and the Roman Catholic Church responded to all this by doubling down on a lot of this stuff uh, in a way that they became much more Catholic, actually, officially, after the Reformation. And the south of Europe, the hot bits, stayed Catholic, so Spain, Italy, um, and a bit of France. But the north, for the Netherlands, Belgium, Germany, Czech Republic, and the, uh, Great Britain became Protestant, generally speaking. Um, we should finish there because it looks like everyone's trying to come in. Um, two, two questions for discussion. What would you think Luther would make of St. Michael's? And I'm happy to... I've had a bit of thought about it. I think generally good is my... But what do you think would be particularly he'd notice? And on the back, he wrote a hymn that people could learn. How much of Luther's thought do you see in A Mighty Fortress is Our God? And you can... Get it on Spotify. There's a there's a recent version of this hymn on Spotify, and so you can. I think it's the top one. So that's his famous Reformation hymn. How much of his thought do you see in there?